We're in Colossians chapter 4, and that's where we're going to read from right now. And as we started last week, um, I'm going to simply read God's Word, and then uh, at the end of reading God's Word, say, and all God's people said, and your response, uh, should you choose to respond this way, is uh, this is God's Word. To remind us that it's God's Word we're talking about, not Sam's, not someone else's. Um, but God Himself. So, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 7 to the end, we will um, read and then respond to it after I say, and all God's people said. Verse 7 of chapter 4 in Colossians says this, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who was one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace grace be with you. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me pray. Father God, I just pray that you will speak uh, your word today clearly. Holy Spirit, move me out of the way that those might hear what you have to say to them to either challenge, uh, convict, or comfort us, whatever we need. By your grace, amen. Now, this is the final sermon in the study of Colossians. You can get them, obviously, on the website if you miss some. And it's my prayer that as, after we've gone through this study, that you would be able to explain in the simplest of words to someone else what the letter of Colossians is about generally and what it means um, a little bit. And so if you've been sleeping for the last 17 plus weeks, I will make it really simple and easy for you and tell you what you ought to say, and that's this, that the letter to the Colossians, a church about as old as us, about five-ish years, in a city similar to our own, is written and is about what it means to be a Christian beyond name. And it's about what it means to mature in that faith apart from what many might deem spiritual, which has very little to do with the gospel or the heart. That's what it's about. And we see a progression of growth as Paul writes in what that Christian will look like. And from the very beginning, uh, in the first or second sermon, we saw that Paul organized kind of the whole letter in very 
uh, simple ways by using three words, faith, love, and hope. And this is not the first time, as I had said, that Paul used these three words to really summarize the heart of Christianity and to tell you what it's all about. He used the same ideas in his letter to Romans, to the Galatians, to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, and even in the book of Hebrews. And the truth is, the gospel radically changes us from inside out. And before the gospel radically changes somebody, we put our faith, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, still put their faith in someone they love in some way, and they hope for some things, and this is all evidenced by how people live. Their faith and their love and their hope. And a deep heart conviction and belief in who Jesus is and what He did transforms us so dramatically. It, it completely changes our relationship with God to the extent that God comes in the form of the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, to actually live in us and dwell in us and change us constantly from the inside out. That is the distinct difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The Holy Spirit. Now, the transformation that occurs is in really these three things. What or who we trust, how we love, and where we place our hope. And it becomes radically countercultural, radically sometimes counterintuitive what we even think. And really counter just about everything. It's very, very different. And through the Word, by the Spirit, everything changes. Our perceptions change of how we even view sin and sinners. Our attitudes change change and what we are able to forgive or love our actions change radically our view of god has changed our view of ourself and understanding our flesh changes our disposition toward sin changes and as a result we start to see it fleshed out in how we do marriage it changes how we parent and have families it changes How we work at our jobs changes. How we even talk to God and to others changes. And that's what Paul has been trying to say. This is what it looks like. You are transformed. And today, we begin to see him center on the idea of hope. And how these things change is a mystery. And what I mean by that, that's why we titled the series Mystery. Because we're talking about someone who's dead and was made alive. Not someone who chose to be alive. Weird, huh? Can't be done. And the mystery, the idea of mystery by definition is something, a truth, that it can only be understood through revelation. Where God comes to someone who's dead. God comes to someone who could care less about him and suddenly, bam! I'm changed. I'm not perfect, But I am walking a different path now out of desire. And that mystery of how to be a godly man, how to be a godly woman, how to have a godly marriage, that's a mystery that never is fully understood. That's the other aspect of mystery. 
It's not like you figure it out. It protects us from things like legalisms with our lists. You can always love more. You can always serve more. You can always be more Christ-centered, and we will never fully understand it or experience it until we're dead and with Him. It's a mystery, and a radically awesome mystery. But as we grow, I believe, in our identity, we begin to understand a different kind of hope, as I said. And we have Christian hope. And Christian hope is something um, that we often, our minds go into talking about the return of Christ. And we need to talk about that more. I find myself praying that more and more. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. John prayed that at the end of the book of Revelation several times. But there's another part of hope, and that is, while we're here, until Christ returns or we return to him, it's going to be one of those two things. What is our hope now? And our hope, is what Paul is going to share with us today, is not only to know God, but it's to make him known. That is our goal. That is our purpose. That is our joy. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it this way. 2 Corinthians is one of my favorite books. He talks about that new transformation that occurs by the grace of God. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone believes in Christ, if anyone accepts Christ's sacrifice on your behalf for your sins that you were guilty of, and receives new life because of His resurrection and His perfection, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. I love that statement. Let us never forget new life, new transformation, new growth. All of this is from God, so as to boast only in Him. Who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we have a ministry that's been given to us, anyone that's been transformed, not just pastors, and a message that goes along with that ministry. And what the snarf do we do with those? This, it says, therefore, so having gotten these things, we are ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador is? This isn't rocket science, right? There's an ambassador for the United States or any countries in another country. And that ambassador is there in a foreign place to represent where he comes from. And hopefully well. We are ambassadors from Christ, meaning this is not our home. But while we're here, we represent Him to the extent where our goal is to make Him known, at the very least, not dishonor His name while we're here. But to make much of Him while we're... That is our hope. Our greatest hope becomes, I want that person to know Christ. I want the city to know Christ more. That becomes a desire of our heart because we understand we're ambassadors. We have a different hope. And that hope is not just individual. It's not just me The beauty of this this transforming power is that when God gives us a new identity, He also brings us into this invisible family called the church. I say invisible because we're not the only church there is. 
We're a visible expression of God's larger church. But it's a family of families. And we are brought together not just as an option. This is part of salvation. This is part of our growth. We need one another. There are 33 plus commands to love one another, serve one another, pray with another, speaking about other believers. We are, the Bible says, being built up together as an expression of the wisdom of God. We are the church that as we relate to one another, we are a pillar of truth in this world to go, this is what God's about. We are to grow together, depend upon one another, have joy and laughter and sorrow with one another. And so we're come together as this family, and let's be honest, we're weird. Right? Every family is strange and quirky. My family is strange and quirky and weird with its own traditions and freaky stories and personalities and just differences. The other day, my son, well, I think it's my eight-year-old son, walked in and he said, Hey, Dad, what's our smell? And I go, you know, I knew what he was talking about. I knew exactly, because I know, I used to think like, every family has their smell. Not good, but just their smell. And I said, I, I don't know, son. I, I smell like that. So I'm not really sure, because you know it, because you take, you go camping, you take your pillow, you'll, you'll get your smell. It's there. And you go, what is that? That's your smell. Every family's got its smell. Every family got its quirks. And yet we come together as family of families. And the, the weird thing or strange thing is that we expect it to be different than a, a normal family. We expect everyone to be kind of like clean and not weird. And so we, for a while, maybe try to fake it until you believe the gospel and you see that that's really stupid to do. And then when your eyes begin to open, you see, man, we're a weird, quirky family. We've got strange people fun people. We have the weird uncles that we don't like to talk about, but we have their family, right? We have our stories together. We're a family that's been brought together. A lot of you would not even be friends if it hadn't been for this family, because you would have judged and dismissed that person without getting to know their heart. But when you bring the gospel to bear in relationships, you look past all that, the hope is, and suddenly you see people that you love and you care for. But see, God didn't just bring us together to gather us as a family. He brought us together as we gather so that we would also be a team of missionaries that scattered out. That's part of being a family, is actually being missionaries. And the missionary team we have is quirky and weird too. And this is what this passage is about today. It begins with this hope of, I want to make Christ known. I can't do that by myself necessarily, but it was this quirky team we have together. What could we do? And I think that most of us would read Colossians 4 and 7 and the rest of the verses, and we would be kind of dismissive of it, because you read it and you go, well, this is just the closing of a letter. A bunch of names. That's just kind of meaningless. Oh, man. It is saucified. It is so good. I was reading through it. I expected that, like, oh, what am I going to preach on this? And I started reading it going, oh, my gosh. This is, like, snarfalicious. It's so good. Like, what is that? It's good. Just go with it, okay? So what I want us to do is to see the names and the people that make up this team that is on mission for God and be challenged individually but also corporately 
about our own team. Here we go. It begins with a guy named Tychicus. And he is, as Paul described, a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. And he is sent uh, back to Colossae. Now, Tychicus is uh, an errand boy, for lack of a better term. I don't know how old he is. He's probably mid-30s. But Scripture, it's interesting as you begin to actually read the Bible, these guys are all over the Bible. And you have to kind of read it all to understand who they are. But Tychicus is mentioned five times with Paul in Acts, in Ephesians, and in Timothy. Most likely, he was a convert at Ephesus. Paul went into Ephesus. He preached the gospel, caused riots, all kinds of things, planted a church, raised up leaders, and then left. He spent several years there. Tychicus was one of the guys, as was Epaphras, who came to see Jesus. Jesus saved them by the preaching, most likely, and teaching of Paul. And all these guys that came out of this Ephesus experience were completely transformed. They, went just, they didn't just suddenly become like really good moral guys. They became guys that were godly who started doing crazy things that they never probably thought that they would do. And all of them, at least the ones that we hear mentioned, are on mission for the rest of their lives. Some to the point of their deaths. And though each person filled a different role, everyone mission was exactly the same, which was to make the gospel known, even Tychicus here. And we tend to think of these guys as just that, like these single strapping guys without families, without careers, with stuff that, well, they have the freedom to do that. No, they didn't. Many have had families. Jesus' own disciples had families that they left and careers that they abandoned. I say abandoned, but more like chose to go on mission and leave behind. So don't think that. These guys were transformed. And like Dr. Luke, Tychicus, this guy, proved to be a man of intense devotion. We see him with Paul in several different places. And and Paul trusted him so much, he commissioned him to carry this letter, Colossians. He took this letter, he took a personal letter to a guy named Philemon, which we'll talk about, it's in the Bible. And he also took another letter and carried it uh, to Laodicea. Most likely that was the letter to the Ephesians. Now, he, Tychicus, experienced, because of what we see in the different letters him mentioned, all the things that Paul experienced. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, you see Paul was persecuted, Paul was mocked, Paul was beaten, Paul almost drowned. Paul did lots of things and they were very painful. Tychicus was right by his side most of the time. He is probably one of the guys that was at Ephesus and and beaten with him during the riots. But the thing about him, even though uh, we have Luke, who's remembered for being a doctor, we have Luke, who's remembered for writing the the Gospel of Luke, which is the most detailed um, and longest of the Gospels. You have Luke regarding or recording the history of the early church. We have Tychicus remembered as a mailman. That's how Tychicus is remembered. A mailman. 
But Paul calls this mailman, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. And as I read this, I began to see his team coming together and reminding myself of this, that there is greatness in the smallest of gospel works. And I would say the things that we consider small, because in our minds, if we're honest, we have a spiritual hierarchy of what is more spiritual, less spiritual, more godly, less godly, more like prestigious. You have your missionaries and your pastors and your church planners, and then you get your elders and your deacons and your community group leaders, and then, well, I mean, there's people that clean the church on Saturday. Let us not forget that the smallest of work in the name of the Lord is the greatest of works in the eyes of God. And God is in our little deeds, and we have to stop making these false distinctions between that which is more or less spiritual than others. Because the gospel brings significance to all the work in part of God's mission. This guy was remembered as a mailman. But he's remembered 2,000 years later as his name is in the Bible, and he delivered a letter to Colossians, and looks like got there. Many of us may not be the people who write the books, or a name is plastered wherever, or the website's named after us. You might simply be the mailman that no one talks about, and that's okay, because I guarantee you Jesus is talking about you, and that's what's most important. And so we see the smallest pieces of gospel work are there. We also have Onesimus, which is another crazy story. Onesimus was a slave. And Paul uh, says something about him here. He says, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Well, he wasn't always that. If you read the letter to Philemon, that is a letter to his uh, master, of which Onesimus was a slave under. And Onesimus... Um, lived in Colossae, as does Philemon, his master, and he stole something, assuming money, from him, and left the small town of Colossae and went to hide out in the big city of Rome. He thought he might be able to mix it, which makes sense. And Onesimus, who is uh, a runaway slave and a thief, somehow finds his way into a Roman prison or nearby. Who knows how that happened, right? He's a slime ball, and that's what happens. Not because he's a slave, because he's a thief. And he happens to run into Paul in prison, who just happens to be there. And Paul says, hey, by the way, let me tell you about Jesus. And bam, Onesimus becomes a Christian. Now what is he going to do? And so we see, I think, in Onesimus, an incredible example, because Paul is sending him back commending him to Philemon, if you read the letter, and telling him, yeah, he's coming back. And he doesn't write to Philemon, hey, uh, let's just forget the whole slavery thing. He says, he's coming back to you to fulfill his slavery and commitment to you, but now he's coming back as a brother. So treat him as such. And suddenly the slavery passage becomes a lot more meaningful when you read it in Colossians. Onesimus is, is more than a slave. As I said, I think he represents in many ways the transformation I think Paul would hope for everyone. Because it's not like Onesimus is really fighting, kicking, and screaming going back to Colossae. 
I actually believe Onesimus really wants to go back. He does have some fear of how that's going to work out. I mean, he stole some money, probably spent it on the Coliseum games. Who knows, right? But he probably had a good time before he got caught. Now he's going back, he doesn't have the money, and Paul says, I'll pay you whatever he owes. And so Onesimus now, I believe, is returning, not reluctantly, but joyfully, ready to serve, ready to bring the love of Christ into his role as a slave. I believe that um, what we see is a guy on this team, and as part of our team, some of us will begin honoring God as we get a, a love for mission and, a, and that feeling that gospel transformation in our lives by honoring the commitments we already have and the places we're already in. I love how Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He speaks to this very issue. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. I'll skip to verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant or slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man to the Lord. And likewise, he who is free when he is called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each is called, there let him remain with God. My hope and agenda is to fire you up with a sense of mission. But the last thing I want you to believe is that as you get fired up for mission, that now I've got to go and leave and abandon my job and go to seminary or plant a church, I'm just going to go. Quite frankly, some of you may actually be called to that. But the last thing I don't want you to do is go, well, I need to actually go be a professional Christian now whatever you describe it. It begins by bringing the gospel to bear where you are living right now. Just as Paul did it in prison and as Onesimus did it as a slave. You fulfill those commitments as a husband, as a wife, as a family member, as a worker. And then, if God calls you into a new path, it might be a little crazy, then you might move forward with that opportunity. But the gospel, I believe, comes in and actually takes our commitments and begins to make those as part of the mission of God, not an obstacle to actually going on mission. No, it becomes part of the mission. That's an estimus. Then you get the next guys in verses 10 to 11. Crazy guys. These are the Jewish guys. We have... Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. Now, Aristarchus, there ain't much said about him. And I thought that was kind of curious. I think a lot of, again, very tempting to repass and go, well, nothing said about him. Let's just think of it for a second. He is called a fellow prisoner. It's the only thing we hear about him. We did hear one other spot about him in Acts, and I'll mention that. But... Here's what I learned from Aristarchus, and no one's going to like this, and that's probably why most people aren't on mission. The mission of God is hard and painful. Incredibly joyful, but incredibly painful. 
There's a cost to it. Jesus actually meant it when he said, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross. That means death. Not like figuratively. It means a lot of things are going to die, even, even maybe you, in your life. It's hard and it's painful. Paul says more than once that he, throughout his ministry, carries the body of the death of Jesus so that he might make the life of Jesus known to others. There's the ministry job description. And the biggest obstacle to us getting on mission. Aristarchus is called a fellow prisoner, and it's likely that he's not actually imprisoned with Paul. Okay? Yet Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. Well, why? Because he is on mission with Paul to the extent that he's experiencing the same things. He may as well be a prisoner because he's put himself in that position. Aristarchus, the guy in chapter 19 of Acts, when Paul is preaching in Ephesus, he preaches against false idols. There's a bunch of guys that basically that's costing them money because they're in the false idol-making business. And so a riot ensues. They drag Paul into the theater. And there's a guy who is also grabbed named Aristarchus with him. And what we see here is that, again, this guy is remembered not because of writing books, not even because he was a mailman, but because he suffered. You and I may be called onto the mission of God, and the role God may have for us is to suffer. And it's not just to suffer needlessly. It is, as Christ on the cross, to suffer with the goal of making Christ known. And God's glory known. Not a lot of people want to sign up for that job. I understand that. But that might be a role. That might be um, the reason why you are a, contract some disease. And we begin to see God's faith and God's glory work through you among us. You might be the one that goes off to that far off place into China and has to hide out and wonder if the next knock on your door is going to be them arresting you. You might just be called to suffer, which is difficult. But that's what the gospel does. It brings suffering in to be part of God's mission. Mark. Mark. John Mark. Man, what an interesting guy. In Acts 15, 27, John Mark, a young guy, abandons Paul prior to him writing this letter years before. John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, as he says here, younger cousin. And in Acts, when uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch, uh, they go on a, a trip, a missionary journey, they do some work, and Barnabas wants to bring John Mark along after they've gone for a while. And here's what happens in Acts chapter 15. Just read it to you says this, Now Barnabas wanted to take, them, take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia 
and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There's, there's so much there. Paul and Barnabas have a big fight. And it's over John Mark. And Paul says, look, when we went here, he abandoned us. He left. Whether he thought it was too hard, whatever, we went on and suffered and worked, and he decided not to, not taking him. And Barnabas, who is Mr. Encouragement, Barnabas is the one who's the one disciple to stay. I know Paul's a murderer, but I'm with him. Barnabas is the guy that's always about pushing people up. He's like, no, 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 come on, Paul. Give him a chance. He's like, no, I gave him a chance. Done. So what happens? Barnabas goes off with John Mark. We never hear about Barnabas again. Paul goes off with Silas. And you hear their journeys throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And then John Mark shows up again. And Paul, to the extent he shows up, he's... He's commending him in this letter as part of his team. And in 2 Timothy, the last letter he writes, the very end, if you read it, he says, please send Mark to me. He's a comfort to me. What? So you ask yourself, what happened? And I, quite frankly, think they both grew up. I don't think, Bar- I don't think uh, John Mark was suddenly like, okay, Paul, I just totally am changed now, and I'm going to do everything you say. And Paul said, well, finally. I don't think it was like that. I think Paul matured, and I think Mark matured. And they had to mature, for whatever reason, on different paths. And they had to have a stark disagreement before the- between them in order to do that. But eventually what happened was their relationship was restored, I believe, because of the gospel. And they begin to see the gospel mission more important than any broken relationship they may have had. And the reality is, there's a lot of us here who, um, even within this church, have broken relationships with people who go to this church. Or people we think, man, I'll never be on mission with that person. I remember at one time we were, and that person did this, or this happened. And I've had people that have left our church with sharp disagreements. And I pray for the day I really do, maybe more this week than I have in a while, for the day that we'll be together again on mission. And I hope for that. And I think it will be a joy. But for right now, that's not going to happen. But here's the heart of the gospel. It's reconciliation of relationships. It's reconciliation of things that are apart and then come together again. And sometimes being apart is healthy for a while. I don't know if it was because of Paul's hard words that... Mark grew up, or Barnabas' encouragement, or Paul being absent from Barnabas and being sad. I don't know, but something happened whereby reconciliation came together, and now they're on mission together to the extent where Paul say, bring this guy who I said never come again, and he's a comfort and joy and a fellow worker. I think that's just beautiful. And then justice. Justice. Who exactly is justice? No one really knows. And there are several justices in the Bible, in case uh, you weren't aware, and scholars disagree on whether this is one of the same ones, whether it's a different one, because their names are so uh, 
seemingly, they, they change and evolve. And so I thought instead of going, well, this is the one, let's give you a quick survey of all, because I think there's a connection for all of them. And uh, the first one shows up in Acts one twenty three. If you're not sure what happens in Acts chapter 1, that's after Jesus is resurrected, he's ascended, and he basically told the disciples before he left, go wait in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit will come. So they're all locked in an upper room waiting, scared to death. And they go, hey, you know what, Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus and went and hung himself, he was one of the twelve disciples, so um, we need a twelfth, because now we only have eleven, so let's draw lots. And they drew lots among the people who had been with Jesus the whole time. Two guys came up. Matthias and a guy named Justice. And Justice was the guy that was not chosen. Think about that. Guy had a chance to be one of the twelve. Right? Just on the edge of glory. Sorry, man. Didn't come up for you. Think of all the reactions you and I could have, or he could have had. The other justice shows up in Acts chapter 18. Paul goes into a synagogue, preaches, and I think it's in Corinth. They kick him out, and the guy who had the house next door named Justice says, hey, you can come preach in my house. And you never hear about him again. And then you have this guy in Colossians chapter 4. The guy with the name Jesus without the job Savior. That must have been a rough one, right? Hey, go get Jesus. Who? Oh, yeah. No, not that one, right? I don't know if you've ever Googled your name. I have. It's depressing, okay? Thinking you're the only person, the only, like, Sam Ford out there, like, Wow, that guy's really studly. You know, and you just kind of like, it's, you play games with your mind, and it's not healthy, so don't do it. But you think about this guy, okay? He had a rough, a rough one, and I think this is what I got from this. And what I believe, honestly, God's Word is teaching us, and that is you don't need the title of pastor. You don't need the title of elder, deacon, director, or whatever to be useful for God. In fact, the gospel, I believe, brings a desire to be known on mission even if you're not known. That makes sense? Just like Tychicus, the people that do a lot in this church, you will never know about. The people that do stuff outside this church in the name of Jesus, there's a lot that we have no clue about. There are people that deliver gifts to different homes and, and gifts to the Autumn Leaf House that you'll never know about. You'll never hear. People make coffee that you don't even know their names. People make cookies you don't know their names. People show up on Saturday and clean a church we don't know their names. But Christ does. Christ knows their names. And there's a lot of people that I know, um, maybe according to that Acts chapter 1, Justice, where he gets on the edge of like, you know, maybe I'm going to be this. Maybe, maybe I get to, to start this ministry, or maybe I get to lead this, and then suddenly you don't, and you go, what's going to happen then? Seems like Justice continued with just as much passion on mission because he didn't care. And he saw it more as God saying, this is what I want for you, and just not this. Not that that's better or worse, that's just for you, and that's for someone else.
Last couple. Looking at this team. Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Now, Epaphras is the guy we know who uh, was the missionary from Colossae who had planted the churches and come. And so, you got to think about this guy for a second. I actually believe that one of the hugest obstacles to our corporate and individually being on mission is to begin to actually look at one another as missionaries. That there are people who are here right now and people in first service who are going to be doing some things they never thought they would ever do. And we will be dismissive of them, at least naturally at first, because, well, I know that guy. You know, a prophet has no honor in his own home type of thing. Epaphras was a normal Joe Colossian. Maybe he was going to Ephesus on a trip to who knows do what, runs into Paul, hears the gospel, and he is transformed. He did not get born at age five, said, you know what, I can't wait to plant a church someday. It's my greatest aspiration. He most likely planted three, though. He went from a kid without purpose to a servant of Christ and became a preacher, a pastor, and a prayer warrior. And that's how you know, because that's how Paul commends him. The guy became a pastor without ever planning to do it, and he became something that was amazing. He planted churches. He's running from Colossa to Rome because he cares about these people. Why he's there, he's praying for them. He was completely transformed into something that he never expected to be. And it's less about being on the mission of God, that is, position, accomplishment, or filling up with a bunch of religious accolades it's about maturing in heart and listening to God what he would like you to do. But there are some apaphrases in here. And what I mean is some of you are going to plant churches. I firmly believe that. Some of you are going to do things you never thought you would ever do. How do I know that? Because I did that. It was not my plan. And I have a bunch of brothers that will talk about this and will pray over Different planners throughout the state of Washington that never planned it as either, either. We need to start asking ourselves some pretty big questions as you begin to orient yourself to the things of Christ and start actually asking him what he would have you do. He might actually answer something that scares you to death. Some of you are called to be planners. Some are called to be missionaries. Some are called to do some pretty big things. Not everyone's an Epaphras, and not every Epaphras is better than anyone who's not an Epaphras. You see a lot of guys in this team, but some people are called to do that. And some of you know it. And some of you may just be a Luke. I've grown an affection for Luke. Um... Luke was an educated doctor. He traveled much with Paul, recorded how the Holy Spirit grew the church in the book of Acts. He wrote two of the most important books in the Bible, two volumes set, Luke and Acts. He was highly educated, highly qualified, highly capable of doing a lot of other things, but he followed around this guy named Paul as he got beat up and told people about Jesus. And although Paul calls him the beloved physician, the thing that 
When Paul speaks about Luke, and he does it a couple times, and here's one, the thing that he remembers most about him is that Luke was a faithful friend. That's what Luke was. And I had that experience when we launched the church. Some faithful friends. Because, and they're still very good friends, and many of them are still here. But when I felt God saying to go plant a church, you know how lonely you suddenly become? How crazy you suddenly look? How freaky it is to put a church service in your garage with lawn chairs and black plastic? But when you get a phone call, I remember getting a phone call from Aaron and Candace. I remember getting a phone call from Mark and Cheryl. And them saying, we're in. You know how nice it is to not know you're alone? Some of you may not be called to to lead the charge, but a lot of you are going to be called to be that faithful friend that as that person is charging the hill, when they look back, you're like, yeah, we're doing it. Because that's so important. I cannot stress how important that is. To be encouraging people on mission, to be encouraging them to maybe think crazy things. And when that thought comes into their mind because it's given by God, you're like, let's do it. Let's do it. You know how terrible it is to look back at the hill and you're about to you know, take some swipes at the enemy and put a flag up for Jesus you look back and no one's there? Some of you are called to be those, those faithful friends. Paul had them. And lastly, um, they're also a dark part of God's mission, which is um, still within God's plan. He controls all the disappointments and all the brokenness. We have this guy named Demas, which the name sounds like demon, so you can kind of see where this is going. Paul doesn't say much about him here, and um, he just sends his greetings. At the time he wrote this letter, he didn't know Demas was not going to be there for much longer. In the last letter in 2 Timothy, the last letter Paul wrote, he says this in chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is the hard part, I think, of being on mission with God. It's harder than the suffering. It's harder than um, the work. It's harder than even the loneliness. It's the fact that not everyone, even good friends and family, are going to go with you. And even if they do at first, they'll maybe abandon you pretty quickly. And here is the heartbreaking truth of that, because it is heartbreaking. Your individual mission with God, for you, for your family, that's something you have to work out with God. I do believe everyone has one. But when you get passionate about it, and it's something maybe crazy or whatever, there are going to be friends that follow you and then break your heart. There are going to be friends that look at you and go, what? You're going to sell What? You're going to give to who? You're going to serve where? That's crazy. And here's the truth of it, and this might hurt. Those that don't get a passion for the mission of God, and whatever that looks like, are just like Demas. The flat-out truth is you love the world more. You love the world more. I love Jesus, but I love blank more. 
And that blank might be your security, might be your comfort, might be your success. I don't know what it is. You might hide behind your job, hide behind your debt, hide behind your family, hide behind a lot of things. The flat-out truth is you're like Demas, and you love the world more than you love God. To the extent where you're not even asking him about mission. You're not even asking him where he wants you to follow him. Because I believe you actually start talking to him, he might tell you some things that frighten the snot out of you. Oh, now that we're talking good, I wanted you to go do this. Oh, last time I talked to you. The gospel sends a lot of people on mission, and quite frankly, the gospel sends some people away from God's mission. That's the truth of it. Close it out, last verse, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Paul directly addresses a guy that I think is all of us. His name's Archippus. They disagree on exactly who he is. Some people believe, if you read Philemon, he's mentioned again that he's actually the son of Philemon, and he may host a church in the house of that house that Onesimus is going to. He's described as a fellow soldier in that letter. His language is used in the similar way that he is, uh, Paul speaks to Timothy, who says, don't ignore the gift that's given you. So it's most likely that he is a pastor of some kind. We don't know exactly how he's not fulfilling his ministry. Maybe it's because of fear. Maybe it's because of laziness. Maybe it's because of something else. But the truth is, he is not doing or fulfilling what he received from the Lord to do. Not what Paul told him to do, but what has been clearly shown that God has asked him to do. So I speak to all of you. Put your name right there in Archippus's spot. And I speak the words of God that you confirmed that I spoke. This. Sam... John, Tim, Bob, Sarah, Tina, whoever you are, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. See that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. See that you fulfill the ministry that you received from the Lord. Not from Sam, not from some other leader, from the Lord. Each of us has a ministry to fulfill. It's not optional. And a lot of us have not fulfilled it because of lots of excuses. We have not been about the things of Christ and been about a lot of other things, some very good things, but you have oriented your life towards those and away from the mission of God and away from the ministry God gave you to fulfill based off of you, your giftings, your passions, your experiences. That's part of God's mission. We are all called differently, but without doubt, we're all given a ministry of some kind. There are fellow workers among us. There are those who are supposed to take the gospel just into your workplace. That's where you've been called to do it in a very tangible way. More than just being a nice person. Some of you are called to help fulfill some of the work we are tangibly doing here. Whether that's 
cleaning on Saturday or preaching the gospel to little kids or greeting people at the door or being sent on mission to Africa or planting the next church that we are going to plant or being on that team or reaching the Hispanic community in this community and teaching them English because that's what your passion is and gifting is. Or being the point person to bless Autumn Leaf House in the transit. I don't know. But you've been, you've been given a ministry to fulfill. And about that many people on that scale are doing it. As you see this team, my hope is that you understand that everyone has a place and a role to fulfill. The gospel sends everyone on mission somewhere as a fellow soldier, and I'm pleading with you to get on mission with us. It may be in a different place, maybe doing different things, but as we gather together, we hear all the battles that are going on as fellow soldiers in the name of Christ to make his name known. Here's the bottom line. We are called to live much more radically than we are. When we plan the church, if this is the line of tension where you're having to live by faith, you're depending upon God, it's exciting, horrible, scary, joyful, amazing, crazy. In five years, I'm just going to be honest with you, this is where I am now. Things have gotten much more comfortable. And some of you are incredibly comfortable. And I'm going to push myself in my own life and in my own family here again. And that's going to get crazy, scary, joyful fun. And that's going to require sacrifice and a cost. But I'm telling you, there's nothing more purposeful and joyful and meaningful in this life than to stay there depending on Christ and making him known. That's why we're here. That is why we're here. We're going to close in prayer, and here's what I'm going to do to remind us of mission and in a spirit of trying to be more prayerful. If you come, um, these are all cards. We had a set for first service, and they're really um, a set for second service. And on these cards are two things. These are all missionaries. Not missionaries like you think. They're all in Washington State, and some are at this church. Half of these cards are names of the pastors of the Acts 29 churches around the Puget Sound, really the state of Washington, every single one. And I even put the prayer on there so you have no excuse of what to pray. And each of these guys represents, this is Brent, my good friend over in Linwood. And it says, on mission at Seed Church in Linwood, Washington. I want to remind you of people that are on mission. Remind you that that's a guy that came out of South Carolina, brought his family out, and a couple people, and dropped down in Linwood, Washington. We go, what? And he's a hilarious, red-headed, pasty-white, ADD guy. You go, how is that ever going to work in the Northwest? And you know what? It does. And he's doing the work of Christ, and he's paid a price for it. His family's paid a price. And I want you to lift him up in prayer. And you'll see that my prayer is not that he will, like, grow his church or that he will even reach people. The prayers out of Ephesians is that he will know God. That he will know God. 
some of these cards have names of people in this church. And it says, On Mission at Damascus Road Church. People that are leading ministries. And I want you to understand that there's a cost to that. There are people that sacrifice a lot to be here so that you're comfortable, but all understanding that whether they're cleaning the church on Saturday, whether they're leading men's ministries, whether they're teaching kids back there, whether they're making cookies, they see it as gospel work, as a means by which we're going to make the gospel known better, take the gospel deeper, and take it farther. It's all gospel work. So I just want you to pray for it. I want you to put it in your car, put it in your house, so that you look and you see that guy's on mission. And you ask yourself, where's my ministry? Not where's my program, not where's my Bible study, where's my ministry? Because I'm not going to tell you what it is. But I pray that you will live in such a way to be more gospel-oriented in this next year.